Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network series in French Studies. I'm your host, Sarah Miles, and today I'm so excited to welcome an old colleague of mine to the podcast, Nicole Bauer. Uh, So Dr. Bauer is an assistant professor of European history at the University of Tulsa. She got her PhD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she studied the cultural and intellectual history of pre-revolutionary France. Her work has been supported, among others, by the the Institut France d'Amérique Gilbert Chinov Research Fellowship and the George Lercy Research Fellowship. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about her new book, Tracing the Shadow of Secrecy and Government Transparency in 18th Century France, which just came out with Paul Grave Macmillan. Uh, The book examines changing perceptions of secrecy and transparency in pre-revolutionary and revolutionary France, and she tells a fascinating story about cadavers buried under the Bastille, angry religious factions, underground newspapers, and Louis XV's secret spies, as you'll soon hear. So, Nicole, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Wow, you made the book sound really cool. It's awesome. It's really fun. Uh, wow. So to get us started, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to French history and what got you into this project in particular. Oh, that's a funny, winding, weird story. So I guess I could start by saying um, in college, I was actually a French major. I was just really drawn to French literature for whatever reason. I don't know why. And I loved reading historical novels. You know, think the classics by Dumas and people like that. That's the kind of thing I loved. And I just had this kind of romanticized fantasy version of French history, and I loved it. Um, and then I did study abroad in France. I was actually in Grenoble, and uh, I started taking history classes. And I just thought that was so incredible. And, and the funny thing is, I always tell my friends, I'm such a night owl, but there was a class offered at the university on um, Ancien Regime France, and I really wanted to take it but it was being offered at eight o'clock in the morning. And I thought, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? You have to be so committed. Yeah. And that's how committed I was. I signed up for this lecture course and it was so great because also I was able to really try to immerse myself in the French language because all the courses were French and um, it was a wonderful opportunity to also learn learn more French. Um, But what I would do is I would roll out of bed, take the tram up to the campus uh, sit, sit in the lecture and then go right back to my apartment and go back to bed. Uh, I'm only waking up for French history, nothing else. <laughs> waking up for French history. Yeah. The only thing that will get me out of bed. Uh, you know, Oscar Wilde has this funny quotation where he said that, um, I will do anything for you except take exercise, be respectable, or wake up early. And I always thought that I was going to my style. Yeah, so... So I started taking these classes and it sort of felt a bit like I was cheating on my lit major with history classes. But um, when I graduated college, I realized that history was really my true love. And I didn't really know that much about um, the theories and all the debates and all the historiography, but I knew that I loved French history. So I decided to um, go into uh, graduate school and become a historian. And then um, later on, I continued, I did an MA in European Studies and 
I um, decided to work with Jay Smith at UNC Chapel Hill, which was phenomenal. And it was so funny because um, part of what helped us click um, was that he was a huge fan of Dumont's novels as well. And I didn't even know that when I applied to work with him. So it was pretty funny. He sent me this email and said, oh, it all started with Dumont Luther. So we're both nerds um, for French historical romantic novels. And then um, I really just fell head over heels even more in love with French history and then started to learn more about theory and historiography. And those debates were just actually intoxicating for me. I absolutely loved it. So that's kind of how I came to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I don't know, like it's such a catchy topic on the surface, right? It's like secrecy and accountability and transparency when people are lying. But I feel like that's not, you know, it's not the first thing you see necessarily when you look into the archives or it's maybe harder to figure out like where the lies are in comparison to maybe the surface level truth is. Uh, so yeah, I'd be curious to hear kind of how you went from liking French literature to trying to figure out who is lying about what and what impact it has. That's a great, yeah, that's a great question. Um, and that's a great point about the lies versus the truth. I, I was not planning on working on secrecy and transparency uh, when I first started, um, and I, I wasn't sure what, what I was going to work on. But as often happens, I came across some stories in the library and in the archives just by chance. And this was when, um, so I was in grad school at UNC Chapman Hall, and I was just digging around at the end of the semester and had some time when classes had been finished. And actually in the Rare Books Library at um, Chapel Hill, there are there's a really great collection of periodicals from the French Revolution. So I just started pawing around and seeing what I could find, and I came across this incredible account of these cadavers and body parts they had discovered after the um, storming of the Bastille in 1780. So in 1790, 91, they're starting to excavate and destroy the, the fortress, and they find these bones and body parts and the French press just went wild. I could see all these frequent, frequent um, editions. Just people keep having installment. Oh, we found a femur today. Oh, we found a skull. Oh, we found this. We found that. And they just, they just go crazy. And they want to know more. And you can even read in newspapers at the time. People will write lovers to the end. They're, oh, I think it's, I think, um, like this or. I think you found the man of the iron wasp. I think you found him. So people were speculating on this, like to the press and related. It was not just like editors saying, "Oh, we have definitively found this." Like people were talking about it. Oh yes. So this is this is what kind of hinted to me that they're very excited and titillated by this mm -hmm. because people would write to the editor and say, "I think it's this," and you said the man of the iron mask was probably this guy, but I think he was this guy. And oh my gosh, despotism! Is it the Kim Terra world? All these bodies we found. And uh, I had never, you know, I loved French history. I had read about it in my childhood and high school. I had never come across this story. And I just thought it was incredible. So I decided at first to try to make this into an article or something. And then this got me on the topic of thinking about uh, transparency and secrecy. Because when these journalists and then the French public are finding out about these cadavers, they immediately interpret it as something horrible and nefarious. They immediately assume uh, the king or his ministers are killing people in extrajudicial killings. Um, they want to like, torture people to doubt. Oh, there's just horrible things going on. And right, like burying all the bodies in the walls of the Bastille or whatever. Right. Right. Like horrible stuff is happening. Um, and, and 
horrible stuff is happening and also the government is not telling us. And this is their this is their immediate conclusion. And of course, because of politics by this point, they're obsessed with um, fighting despotism. So they equate secrecy and abuse of power with abuse of power and despotism. And so the king, the government, the ministers are terrible. They're doing these horrible things and they hate it in creepy, moldy dungeons. And we only discovered it because we, with our patriotic fervor, uh, decided to destroy the Bastille and we found these bodies. And so then they selected them and staged a huge state funeral or grand funeral for them and processed down one of the main avenues of Paris and then gave speeches and, and then made little model Bastilles to pass out to people and it made it a huge thing and then gave the speech about all oh, these people were killed in secrecy and horror. We are bringing them to light of transparency. Mm-hmm. And so this is this was just incredible and wild. And I thought I have to do something with this. And so it led me to the topic of secrecy and transparency. And I dove into the political culture of the revolution, which of course is like a huge, there's a huge body. There's a few books on it. Yeah, it's just a tiny, you need to read that in a weekend. So, so I decided to do that. And then um, I realized there were lots of other angles, too, I could take with secrecy, like espionage or religion. And what I really like as a historian is when things are counterintuitive. They're not, you're not, they don't come to mind right away. So, for example, with uh, transparency, that that's such an important part of the political culture of the revolution and arguably into modern democracies ever since. Is there maybe a dark underbelly to some to this drive for transparency? Is there maybe something about it that is sinister or maybe uncomfortable for us? And similarly, the, the um, literature angle was interesting to me because I know there's also a lot of literature on Jansenism, and um, you know, especially starting with Dale Bonclay, but many others like Catherine Mayer and Monique Coche have written wonderful literature on Jansenism. But it tends to be very um, kind of this Whiggish or positive narrative of Jansenists were great because they're fighting the state and they're patriotic and maybe their ideas all um, contributed to the French Revolution. And I agree. I agree with that. But um, what I found in my research was in their fight with the Jesuits, this kind of narrative pops up. It's kind of a light motif in French literature that Jesuits are severe um and pulling the strings behind the scenes. Um, this is the narrative that the Jansenists actually very successfully implanted into the French psyche starting in the 1750s or earlier. And so I found that a lot of the Jansenist literature about the Jesuits and others actually had very sinister ones as well. There was a lot of xenophobia and even anti-Semitism in the way they portrayed the Jesuits and used a basically had a very successful smear campaign to get them expelled from France. And so that was also interesting to me. There was kind of this, again, a dark underbelly to this positive narrative of the Jansenists as being just patriotic and fighting despotism. There's a lot of um, negativity, I think, or a sort of sinister, something sinister about the way they portrayed the Jesuits. And so this I found... Throughout, I found it with gender as well. They started to talk about women as secretive and pulling strip mm-hmm. on the scenes. So it's interesting how the way they talk about the Jesuits starting the 1750s, 60s is very similar to how they're talking about Madame de Pompadour and women at court. 
So it's just like, ooh, interesting. Maybe there's like a dark side to all this bribe or transparency. And that really excited me. But I, I definitely had to make choices like pick and choose because there were things I think that people might ask. I didn't include, I didn't talk much about the Freemasons or any, um, other groups like that. Even I think there's a lot of uh, work that could be done there because they were all accused to supersede or lying. So that's kind of, um, that's kind of what happened. They, I picked topics that were interesting to me and that's that, that story of the cadavers was what opened the floodgates and led to this project. So it's interesting. I think what you're saying about kind of transparency, having this like dark underbelly, despite the fact that we kind of presume that, you know, government transparency, right? That's government transparency office in the United States. Like we presume that that's an inherently kind of good thing. And it sounds like a lot of the historical figures that you're talking about also presume that it's a good thing, right? They're suggesting that transparency is inherently good, and that there's only good things that come of it. Anything that's not being transparent, that is non transparent, is necessarily because it is like evil and shadowy. Um, so I kind of see that like paradox of there is a positive aspect that people are proposing, but also it kind of causes or relies on these kind of negative, more nefarious means. Uh, but it's it's interesting too, because I think in the first chapter in particular, we see how maybe secrecy has a similar kind of flip side, right? Um, or we're pr- kind of presuming that secrecy has this like real negative connotation, that it's necessarily bad to keep secrets. But you sort of suggest um, in the first chapter about the Le Decachet that secrecy had like a social purpose, right? It had this kind of like political purpose, it had a kind of form of social cohesion, or it did something kind of useful in society. And so starting to deny secrecy um, or suggest that secrecy needs to be removed from everything, maybe change things more than people thought it was going to, um, or maybe kind of upended the social order in some way. So I don't know if you want to talk about that. Oh, sure. I would love to talk about that. I could talk about legislative all day. Just fascinating, amazing stories. I found a lot archive. Um, so for the lecture de Cache, I was mostly looking at the Bastille archives at the Arsenal, which is a branch of the Bibliothèque Nationale, incredible B. We met the amount of records they wanted to preserve from um, for the police in the Arsenal. So that's really impressive. First off, I should say that. Um, thank you, French archivists, for your work all throughout this year's. Uh, so I owed a lot to them, these amazing records. And I found just incredible stuff where um, a lot of it is what we might expect, where it is families trying to preserve patriarchal order and the power of a patriarch and the family to impose order and punishing people's people for deviating from social norms in um, various ways that you can imagine. So, for example, one of the stories I found was this noble woman who um, started dating this guy who was basically a water carrier. This is a great snake like that. So good, yes. Yes, yes. Um, Mademoiselle de Nujon. She um, She's from a very high-ranking noble family, and she starts dating this guy who was a water carrier, and I think later became a music teacher. But anyway, it's super scandalous because they're not from the same social class, and she's also living with her mother, who is very upset with this whole situation. And um, on top of the difference in social class, I mean, there's the gender aspect, too, because if someone, the male upper-class person had a kind of, I mean, which they get all the time, like if he's having a dalliance with the chambermaid, it's no big deal. It's like, whatever. Well, um, because she's a woman, probably, and she's also very, quote-unquote, shameless about her frolicking with this guy, so he would ride a carriage with her, and he would come over for dinner with her, and one time, I think, she took him to the opera. So it's very, it's very scandalous. 
like a public right, place. right. And the whole neighborhood knows about this. And the interesting thing is, her mom uh, is just beside herself and asks the government for a lettre de cachet. So what we would do is basically what you would do if you're a um, distraught aristocratic mother in the 1740s. Pro tip for all of our distraught aristocratic mothers in 1770s. Yes, I got it. This is what you do, by the way. This, this is right. also your um, guidebook. Um, so you would go to the police and explain the situation. And you always talk about how you need to keep, you need to do basically damage control or keep it as secret as possible because it's already bad that some people know about this and that some of the neighbors are talking. So the idea is that we need to uh, enclose this or mitigate it as best as we can so it doesn't spread worse because there's always a sense of urgency and secrecy with Metro de Cachet when they write these letters that say, please, please, we need to contain this. We need to keep it secret because if we don't, the damage to my honor or my credit or my reputation will be irreparable and blah, blah, blah. I'm an aristocratic family member. Can you think of our standing in the community? What this would do if people started sniggering and murmuring about us? You know, what would that need? So please, please, please intervene now. We need to act now to stop the damage and preserve our reputation. And the secrecy will help that. So she has her daughter arrested. And um, she's set to walk. And the interesting thing about the daughter is she resists immediately. And what you see here is this interesting shift. You're kind of watching it in real time through the morning of the 50s, really exploding in the 60s, um, the 18th century, where the daughter asserts her um, individuality and her autonomy and says, well, I'm an adult. And she's about 30 at the time. I can do what I want. I can date this guy if I want. It's my life. And my mom and I actually never really got along. And I should be allowed to do this if I want. And so there's this interesting conflict or tension happening between this growing sense of individuality and autonomy happening during the Enlightenment and the kind of older sense of collective honor and collective shame where the patriarch, matriarch of a family needs to exert control in order to maintain order. And it's like this microcosm or the larger idea of the kingdom where the king is at the head of the family of the kingdom. And so the king intervenes through the police to help you person maintain order and in within your family that, right? Just he would do this again. The macrocosm. Kind of body politics. Right, right. This whole family idea, right? So, um, mm-hmm. so that's the idea. And there's this conflict between the two where um people are starting to talk more about individuality and um and this of course is like really building off of sarah moss's great book about Kosanon, where um in the old regime it was more traditional if you have a problem you go to a person of authority and say please intervene so if you're this woman's mom go to the police aka you know you're supposed to be representing the king please intervene um the damage to my family honor blah 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 but you see that with the rise of public opinion, more people, more and more as the century progresses, appeal to public opinion to say, this injustice happened to me. Please, reading public, um, get indignant on my behalf and pressure the state or whoever to act on my behalf. And so the daughter started publishing her memoir, which are kind of the, the briefs the lawyers would write to defend the client. And that more and more was getting published. And so... People were starting to read about what was going on with her, and she was trying to get people 
um, the public on her side by saying, oh, I'm an individual. I have rights. I, I, can, I can date this guy if I want. I'm not hurting anybody. Whereas her mother is much more in the old-fashioned vein. I appeal to powerful figures. I also believe in collective honor, collective shame. And you get younger figures like her and Mirabeau who say, oh, if I, even if I do something shameful, this is just me and an individual. That should not have any bearing on my family or anybody else. They didn't do anything wrong. So the shame or the honor would just be lying low. And that's a much more enlightenment era type thinking. Whereas the older generation, especially, and these are the people who solicited and asked on that to cachet, they're much more in this sense of collective honor, collective shunning, which you can see as, you could say is more pre-modern. The sense that if one member of the group does something bad, that shames all of us. And so you see it happening. You see people kind of um, pushing against that old paradigm and saying, no, actually it should be individual honor, individual shame. My action does not have any gain on the people of my group. And um, I think that kind of comes to a head, and I, and I know that's not a super original idea, that in the revolution, you really see more of the rise of that sense of individual autonomy and um, individual responsibility. But it's also pushing away against the sense of, right, that's kind of also seen. So that's kind of, that's kind of the idea there is that, um, that tension is happening and the lecture de cachet became a way for me to see in a for lack of a better word, how the French are become modern in the revolution. But in the first half, lecture de cachet are very, um, very well accepted, um, and in and by extension, secrecy is not a negative thing for the French. That's kind of the main arc of the of the book is um, see, they don't have a problem with secrecy um, until things start to shift mid century with all these things happening with the Jansenists and the Jesuits, some other political issues like the Seven Years War, um, and then you move towards the revolution where really they're all about transparency. I mean. Historians of the revolution, Lobins, and talks about those things. They love talking about transparency. They're terrified and paranoid of, secret, of cons- conspiracies and plot. So something happens where in the early 18th century, they're fine with secrecy and they, they solicit lettre de cachet using secrecy to maintain family honor and reputation. And then by the end of the revolution, it's like they all had amnesia and they're saying, secrecy's bad. The king imposed lettre de cachet on us and was being a despot and taking away our, our civil liberties and rights, um, not not remembering that actually they themselves, the majority of lettre de cachet, were not handed down by the king. Right. It was not sort of like blanket punishment. It's actually like... Right, right. That's the thing. And and that goes against the, the narrative of the revolution. Like the story of the revolutionaries is the king's a despot and he would hand down these horrible punishments Um when it, but in reality, it was people also of, of all kinds of social classes, from aristocrats down to the artisans or a baker or a shoemaker, would also solicit lettre de cachet against his son or his wife to put this person away, at least temporarily, to maintain family. Um, the other interesting thing I have to just add real quick is that um, while it is in service of the patriarchal idea of the family, Wives could use it against their husbands because it was a quicker, more streamlined way to get to turn up someone than um, going through the normal channels of justice. So if he was really violent and abusive or comes home drunk every night, 
um, she would ask the police to put him away so that uh, to protect himself or her children. And um, the police would verify it. They would talk to the neighbors or the local parish priest. Yeah. And, and um, if, it, if, if it all checked out, they would have the hospital away. Huh. So we do, we do see that. And um, it could sometimes be a lot safer and quicker for an abused spouse right. to be able to do that. Which also tends to maintain that kind of secrecy, right? Like a secrecy in a positive way, which is that like if you go to court, if you like try your husband, then that becomes like a whole thing and dominates your life. You have to tell people all the details of what's happening. It can be reported on, et cetera, et cetera, versus if you can sort of prove it in the context of that, actually it kind of keeps your honor, your kind of household privacy, this more like personal sense of who needs to have that information. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's a great point. And, um, and I think privacy has been something that the French always valued, maybe even more so in some other cultures. So Yeah. Yeah. So the story of the the Denojans brings up kind of the interesting problem I was thinking about while reading the book overall with regards to to like the source base that you're using, which is that you're dealing really explicitly with things that are kept quiet, with like rumors of things, with facts that are necessarily contested, which is very much like not, you know, the realm that historians like to work in most of the time, right? We in theory we acknowledge that the truth is slippery, but in to some degree, we want to know like what happened, right? Who did what? Mm-hmm. At what time did this occur? What is the correct event, et cetera, et cetera? Um, so I'm wondering if that's something that you sort of thought about as you were looking through sources. The, like, how do you deal with the necessary murkiness of the stories that you're telling? And I wonder sort of how you felt that drive towards trying to find historical fact versus allowing the kind of secrecy and rumor and fogginess of everything to kind of stay in the foreground for the purposes of your story. So, yeah, there is there is a lot of fogginess, murkiness to this. And um, I would say that maybe because I'm a cultural historian and I love looking at um, art and media, like literature, to um, give us a way in to how people were thinking at the time, uh, that I was less worried about finding facts or the actual way things were, the, way, the actual way things happened, then investigating how people were thinking about it. That, that's what was interesting to me. How are they talking about what's happening in the dungeons of the steel, this or that dungeon or that creepy monastery, that sort of thing. And there are lots of books, there's a lot of work done on what was actually going on in the Bastille. And some people were like, it was terrible. And other people say, no, actually, it was fine. And those, there's there's two different um, terms, actually. There's the Black Legend of the Bastille, and it's the Rose Legend, or the Genre. So, and that's the one that it's, it wasn't that bad. It was actually a little nice there. So, um, we'll never know exactly how bad or how not so bad it was in these places. We do have accounts. We have a lot of eyewitness accounts. It does seem to be that the Bastille was not as terrible as the revolutionaries described. It, of course, you can see why they needed to be bad in the revolution. If things are like okay during the ASEAN League. We're just moderately upset about the former regime. Like the revolution doesn't work nearly as well. Right, right. You need like you need really concrete stories of horror in order to justify revolution. And every revolution has done this. You can see this all the way to the Iranian revolution in 1979. And by the way, I have we have every reason to believe those are true. See, you could see these patterns, right? Where revolutions need stories of resistance and sto- a, 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 an ideology of resistance with stories of injustice. And so, um, so the Bastille is probably not as bad 
and the revolutionaries needed it to be. But they were very successful in portraying it as this really disgusting, horrible, dank dungeon. And you see this in all the mountains of pamphlets published um, after 1789. Um, I think people know that censorship was lifted when the revolution broke out. And so then there's this, this mushrooming periodicals and newspapers and people publish all kinds of pamphlets. And it was even before that, there were lots of legal pamphlets. And so they're circulating and promoting this story of abuse of power in these prisons. And so I wasn't actually worried too much about finding out what was happening in reality. And it seems like there were fewer executions happening within the prison that did happen sometimes in earlier centuries. There were executions on the Um, But, um, and it seems like some of the bodies buried there were people who were not of the Catholic faith. And so they, you know, back then they believed that we would not be able to be buried in consecrated grounds if you were not Catholic. So some people who died in the prison were buried in the garden. And that's probably they found when the revolutionaries started excavating. But of course, the revolutionaries assumed that this is a horrible. Right, all the people who were secretly murdered. It's what this, it, yeah. but you know. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's probably, um, so based on my research, that's probably what was going on. But the, the tragic thing is because the reputation of the result is so creepy, it's so nefarious, and even across borders, it was um, across the borders in Europe, Europeans just had this creepy, dark idea of a prison. And this was probably spread by Protestants who had gone um, abroad when Louis XIV expelled Protestants. And so they were spreading kind of creepy, dark rumors about to work where horrible the French regime was. Um, maybe Jansenists, who often published in the Dutch Republic or elsewhere, talking about how terrible the regime was because they were persecuted in the early part of the 18th century. So basically, the tragic part is this legend got so over the top terrible that sometimes you get suicides mm. of prisoners in there because they're convinced that something terrible is going to happen to them or it's an awful place, and they're just terrified and they they are convinced they'll never get out. That's another kind of story is once you're in, you never get out. Right, right, right. It, you do have stories, at least so I do know that this happened because they will keep record. They would investigate him as a suicide. So that's kind of the sad part. Or you have this one guy who was German and they just uh, went crazy because he was convinced his, his life was over. He would be stuck there for the rest of his life and his crying while screaming every night and using to and the guards are kind of at their wit's end. They don't know what to do with this guy. And he's just terrified and sad and cry. Um, and they never, it seems like they never tortured this guy or gave him a hard time. He's just psychologically um, looked up because he thinks it's, a, it's such a terrible place. Right. And you can imagine, though, if like you're a Parisian citizen living near or around the prison and you hear people screaming and moaning and crying from inside the prison, what are you going to think? You're going to think, this guy's being tortured or something horrible is happening. So that's the thing. It's kind of this this legend. That was, that's what was interesting to me, regardless of what's really happening. What people think is happening is sort of creating its own reality. Mm-hmm. Because by hearing this guy screaming and wronging, you then assume something terrible is happening, which then perpetuates the fear of others, which then perpetuates people getting other people getting in there in the future and making becoming suicidal, right? So it then almost creates this reality uh, that they imagined, right? That up um, 
Yeah, I th- you get into that quite a bit in the the fourth chapter where you're really talking about like you you break down in pretty impressive detail like exactly what the practices to the best of our capacity to know them of the best deal where like people are going to be brought in at night and they leave at night and they have to swear these things such that they don't say what's happening within it. They're sort of like really trying to repress any amount of information leaving the best deal itself. Um, but I think, yeah, you make that point really well in that chapter that regardless of what was actually happening the fear of it ends up kind of creating this reality that people then act on whether or not it was true in the first place, um, which is, I think, kind of this this reinforcing cycle or circle that comes through um, a lot of the work that you're, that you're looking at here, which is that, like, to some degree, it matters what is true, and to some degree, what people believe is true, they're going to act on, and that ends up kind of influencing how culture is changing. Yeah, and I, yeah, and I guess I would add that the government definitely has an official policy of secrecy and this is just long de rigueur for governments in the renaissance going all the way to the 18th century it's not particularly unique to the french um we can see people talking about this like in renaissance like machiavelli and others that just secrecy is essential rishi also who loved machiavelli talks about this too you need secrecy to be an effective government to be um to maintain your power and this is just what you do Mm-hmm. And um, but they carried that ethos, you could say, into the 18th century, and just seemed to maintain a secrecy from secrecy's sake. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to tell anyone what's going on. We're not going to let anyone know. We're not going to let people write letters or ask questions about a prisoner that the steal. We won't even tell the prisoners why they've been arrested. It's kind of um, using secrecy also as terror to keep mm-hmm. someone in uncertainty, so they're more, I, I guess, malleable or easy to interrogate. They would do that, and then they would make sure the public knows as little as possible. And so they would, like you said, go out of their way, have all these strict rituals and regulations to keep keep things as secretive as possible, to keep information from escaping. But sometimes, just for its own sake, it's not really helping anything, right? But so the, by doing that, that just they unwittingly um, add to that legend, add to that rumor mill by keeping secrets so fervently. That then the public, which is growing and becoming more consistent, as you could say, during the Enlightenment, is wondering and speculating and getting really curious and getting really suspicious about all this secrecy. Right? Why don't you tell us what's going on in there? You know, and in the earlier centuries, you could say, none of your business. You're just commoners. I don't have to tell you anything. Um, under Louis the Fourteenth, that probably will work, but when things are changing in the Enlightenment and they're, they're really on the, this idea of public opinion. It's um, it's sort of hitting against it's it's creating this tension between new ideas of well we should get to know what's going on in the government and the government being more traditional and saying no secrecy is how things work we don't believe in the tradition and so that again feeds into that story of oh my gosh what's going wrong and the government is tellable so it must be sinister it must be nefarious otherwise we wouldn't hate it mm-hmm. and it's more of this obsession of secrecy hiding something various whereas in earlier decades it's oh no secrecy we just need not right so secrecy becomes proof of something nefarious and then you have to go like it is then the public's job because they have no other information no other recourse it's then their job to go kind of rumor mail or whatever else you could possibly do to kind of figure out what the secrecy is hiding exactly one of the kind of bigger agenda forces that isn't a person in, in the book is public opinion um so do you want to talk a little bit about sort of what you understand public opinion to be and what exactly kind of makes it a force through the Enlightenment and early revolution in a way that it, it wasn't before? Oh, that's a big one. <laughs> it's a casual question. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I mean, there's so much we can really go down the rabbit hole with theory with this one. And um, there's just there's a ton, there's a ton written about this. And um, I can point to folks if they're interested. There's, there's great books like Melton's book on the public um, public opinion. And um, Sarah Maza, of course, writes about this and this is Jane Graham. And, and of course, here's Habermas. Everybody has to read and talk about um, in his epic debate about it with Foucault. The, the traditional narrative is this. Okay, the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment comes, and um, this is kind of Abramas. We all decided to become more rational and realize that we can reach consensus through debate in these spaces where we are gathering. And because there's rising liter- literacies, kind of Roger Chartier, Robert Darnton growing a bit, um, because of rising literacy and more people living in cities, we are able to have these discussions in these public places like the Salal the um, public square and the coffee shops and um, realized we can be more rational and um, have debates in these public places and then um, reach these new amazing ideas, right? And isn't it great that we do this and that public opinion um, can help us come to up with these new ideas and is actually a force independent of the state acting um, and that the state eventually has to realize it must to reckon with. So that's kind of the traditional narrative. Um, of the Enlightenment and public, the public sphere and the rising power of public opinion. I think, again, here I am with, um, and this is kind of Foucauldian, uh, there's a there's a kind of alternative way of looking at that. And instead of it just being a positive narrative of the Enlightenment, um, what you actually also have happening is the growth of the bureaucratic modern state and probably the most salient feature of this is the police force. Because more and more, the public see uh, police intervening into their lives in ways they haven't done before in ages or in the 17th century, right? Suddenly, the government is paying attention to you. It's watching you. They're opening people's letters, and that was pretty common. There um, there are police spies everywhere, and you can read this in all kinds of texts in the 18th century. Oh, there's spies in the taverns. There's spies in the restaurants. You can't have a conversation with your friend about a police spy in this again. Right. So the police and of course there were spies on the international stage. Right. But they're like, oh, the government's paying attention to us. They're listening to us. They're reading our letters. Right. The state is just starting to sort of notice its population and interact with its population sometimes through police and enforcement systems, but also sometimes just um, bureaucracy. Right. Exactly. And it's just because the state is growing and, and growing in sophistication. So it's able to do this. Right. Um, but people are noticing this and noticing that it's new. So in the Middle Ages, it was kind of like you just watch the king. The king would parade through the street, or you know, a bishop or a cardinal would parade through the street. Well, well, you may say you even watch it, and and you don't. To use this Bocodian term, there's no reversing of the gaze. There's no state looking back at you and caring about you because you're just a pathetic peasant. I don't care what's going on in your life. But as the state becomes more modernized under Louis XIV and then later later centuries, um, then they start to pay attention, exactly like you said, to populations and, and what's happening there. And part of this is to make a state more efficient. Part of this is other just a sense that, oh, I want to pay attention to these resources even when we have it. And um, there's a lot of, there's all kinds of things going on. Uh, people write pamphlets and we want to increase censorship and have this going on, right? So there's just more of the sense of the government intruding into your knowledge, watching you, wanting to know what's going on with you, 
And that I think gives birth to this sense of privacy, right? Privacy is not a thing in the early model or earlier early right? Um, this is a newish idea. People often associate it with the bourgeoisie as war right? I mean, the private parts of it. Um, before the 19th century, we didn't have private parts of it. Not really. We start to get that in the 18th century. So what happens is by the state intervening and paying more attention to you, you start to feel resistance. Like, hey, wait, I don't want you watching it. Stop it. You know, whereas in earlier centuries, nobody's watching you. Nobody cares. Right. But now it's like, like that song, like, like, kind of constantly aware of the presence of the state in a way that you wouldn't have had to be before. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. You're reading my letters. You're, you're listening to my conversation. Stop it. Stop it. Right. And, um, so that's, what's new or you can say modern or modernizing. Um, and so I think, um, that is an interesting alternative narrative to the, enlightenment narrative which is you know i think i think pretty valid too but uh this alternative narrative of this state intervening more into our private lives or us maybe having this thing we call privacy um creates this new resistance this new sense of resistance to to these intrusions or this surveillance of it and so then people start to think well maybe we should uh pop have, you know, have, have a way to resist this, right? And so, I mean, I, this is kind of simplifying it or putting it in a nutshell. Basically, then that possibly leads to a, a rope of a sense of public opinion and the public sphere that is independent of the state in that um, I don't, I think many theorists would say there's no kind of power that's separate from this power. It's all kinds of different forms of power coming from different directions, right? That's kind of an interesting narrative to me, this alternative narrative that, um, no, there's a modernizing state, it's intruding more into life, and then you start to um, develop the sense of resistance or even, a, and you start to incubate these ideas of privacy or individuality, which are new. And they didn't, um, no one's talking in those terms before the 18th century. So at least in the West, as far as, as, far as we know. But that's that's it in a nutshell. It's kind of the Habermasian take, and then it's how other takes are. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really helpful. I think, um, and it, I think part of the story that you're telling here as well is this kind of, as you were suggesting, all power goes all sorts of directions all the time. But there is some amount of like segmenting of public opinion from the state. Right? These become kind of oppositional forces over the course of the story that you're telling. Um, and I think that came across really strongly in so your second chapter. You talk about the Secret Zobois, right? This like secret spy agency of Louis XV. Uh, obviously, it was not a secret spy agency in the kind of modern James Bondish way, but it, it feels like that sometimes. Yeah. Um, but you talk about how some of the ministers of the king, right, so Pompidou and Necker in particular, have these really, really, really different opinions in terms of kind of what public opinion is and what their responsibility towards it is. Um, and so Pompidou is what, in the 1750s and Necker is the 1780s or so. Um, so it's not realistically that far apart, but they kind of have a pretty substantial uh, rift between how they understand public opinion. So maybe that would be a good thing to to explore as a way to kind of understand how the shifting emergent sense of public opinion is kind of the modernizing process in the 18th century is, is changing how the government is actually acting as well, not just kind of how people are thinking about the state. Yes. Yeah. So that's, that's really interesting. So the, the Sucre du really quick is just this, um, it was, yeah, a secret spy network run by Louis XV that he kept secret, of course, when 
people, but from also from his own ministers and his mistress, though she might have found out about it later, Obador and then to Barit. Um, so, and that again, what happens there is this conflict between an old paradigm and a new one. Louis the Fifteenth, of course, grew up um, in the atmosphere of the legacy of Louis the Fourteenth, and so the idea back then was um, a king should have different sources of information in order to verify. Right? Okay, well, I'm going to get it from official channels, or my minister will tell me this. We'll see what my spies tell me. And of course, everybody has spies. I mean, the king has spies, ministers have spies, mistresses have spies. Like. This is normal that you have spies or your servants are also more spies. And these spies. So it sounds like a great plan. It's great. Right. I mean, you're already spying on everybody at court, of course. Um, and so, and so everyone just assumed, yeah, the king had spies. Um, but what happens is it blows up and it is an epic fail. It is just a mess in Louis the 14th, even while he was just kind of following the recipe of Louis the 15th. Of having different channels of information, um, but he did not reckon with things changing so much by the 1750s and 60s. So, um, so basically, he has a secret spy network, and um, it gets complicated because sometimes he would have official policy, say vis-a-vis Austria or Poland, like then it's our official policy towards Poland. But then he would undermine it with this secret yeah. network and and say no actually i want me to do this not tell anybody we're actually going to have an alliance with these people but on days look like we're in war or something like this right and so his foreign minister um found out or, or was suspicious that um oh he could tell that there were people who were close to the king and he was having private conversations with them and he became suspicious that the king had some kind of ulterior motive or some other other um policy goal and so he arrested some of the people of the network and sent them to a Bastille. Here we go again, with uh, people being sent there. And the king couldn't protect them because by letting that guy out would be kind of acknowledging that he had this secret. Right, that he had some secret favor with the king. Right. Yeah. So he just had to like, let that guy languish for a really long time. It was really horrible. And then the other guy who was in charge of his um, secret, uh, the Comte de Bois, I think he pronounced it. So. Um, he eventually had to take the fall because um, the king's, again, the foreign minister found out about this. The king's mistress, by this point, Dubari, was um, skipping around and found out about this also. And then, of course, you also have complicated alliances between some ministers um, are in this clique and some were in a clique with the mistress. So Pompadour was very powerful, especially in the 50s, and she had people like, on her side. And then Dubari also had people on her side and she was upset about um, the king having this maybe secret network, and she wanted to find out about it. So she joined forces with the foreign minister, find out about it. Um, and so then the head of the secret war had to take the fall and be um, exiled for a really long time. And he was super upset about this because of the damage to his pawn. And also he's in exile. He wants to come back. So um, then it's it's just it's just a total mess. Austria found out about their secret um uh, I guess you could say cipher, and they realized that the Austrian court had been reading their correspondence for years. That was a disaster. And it hadn't been as secret as they thought. And then the public, it leads to one of these underground newspapers. They found out about the Supreme du Bois. And um, the way they interpreted it was the king was keeping secrets from his own court and his ministers, 
not because that's uh, a savvy thing to do, but because he's weak and scared. Mm-hmm. This is, um, if he were really an upfront, manly man, he would not, have, he would have nothing to hide and he would not be keeping secrets from his own ministers and would be keeping secrets from us in this way, right? Mm-hmm. And so this really new interpretation, again, very different from saying, under Louis the 14th, that would just be accepted, that would be normal. They interpret this as a sign of weakness and um, being scared of his own court, not feeling strong enough or powerful enough to come up front, to be at front and say, this is what I want, this is what we're doing. We're right. going gonna, gonna to have an alliance with Austria. And so this was this was a, a big problem with um, what happened. And it just it just fell apart and the whole thing exploded. And the leader, the one who had been exiled, was trying to appeal to come back to court and then kept saying, even while I was head of this huge uh, secret spy network, I really didn't want to be. I really am not someone who favors secrecy. I did it because I was obeying the king and I want to serve the king because I'm so loyal to the king. But I am not a secretive person by nature. And if you see, and he uses this language that you see later on the revolution, things like search my heart or search my past. Mm. You see, I have nothing to hide. There is nothing shapeful. I, you know, I'm as clear as gay. So it used to be secrecy helps honor. Now transparency helps honor, right? So I have nothing to hide, therefore I am honorable. And so Nick here, writing in the 1780s, really kind of, um, by that point, really people in the mainstream culture are on board with that idea. And so he's just really emphasizing that whatever and using that to make his bold move, which is publicizing the budget, which had never been done before. Right. Um, but he wrote this kind of um, longish book about public opinion saying, this is so great. This is how we maintain honor. If a minister is corrupt, the public will, you know, defame him in the newspapers, and so then he will have to step down because public opinion will force him. So for him, it's a form of honor and enforcing on justice or the smooth runner of governor. Um, that is kind of developing that idea throughout the 18th. And Pompadour, I think she understood that that public opinion was starting to become very powerful. And she tried to uh, maintain her reputation as best she could. But there were just a lot of attacks on her and she was not uh, um, she was told by the opening people's lawyers. The our chief of police was her guy and um, she went in the letters of uh, the postmaster general was also her guy so i guess he took those letters for her and then you know she would have people arrested if she thought they were um did a defaming her and seemed terribly like my rule and so she wasn't above that but she she thought it was necessary oh i need to do this I need to maintain secrecy to maintain more high reputation and the reputation of her and she would use this substance like it's not about me it's about the king i'm trying to help you uh but i've only been all these people say bad things about me. They don't understand. Like, I'm only a woman who's guilty. I'm not big enough. She'll say things like that. And, you know, it's really great because we have a lot of warnings. And she was, she was quite powerful. I think that's part of the attacks against her were um, you have a woman building power. It's not you. A mistress or a queen or a queen regent is not, wielding power is not anything in the cross. You see that through the centuries. What happens in the 18th century is this new language of transparency leads to this um, very sexist language of women are secretive. Women can't be trusted. Mm-hmm. They force like the Jesuits, but just like the Jesuits. Um, they're not 
they don't have legitimate power, they don't have legitimate positions, yet they're there. And so that's the interesting kind of um, aspect that people don't really take into account with the rise of transparency. It becomes jumbled and masculinity is associated with transparency and the public sphere. Femininity is, is associated with uh, the courts, the aristocracy, uh, secrecy, not legitimate. And they start to argue, you know, like people like Marcel, that women should stay in the domestic sphere and not involve themselves in politics because look what they do. You know, they're just, you know, whispering on the pillow of the king, kind of influencing things. And um, they, sh- they don't belong there and they're just making a mess of things. So that's kind of the, the gendered aspect. And, it, and we see that in revolution too. A lot of people argue that women should stay out of politics because the public sphere is gendered next to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you really see that kind of language of transparency and secrecy being mobilized in order to make kind of gendered or sexist or kind of anti-women in power critiques of somebody like Pompadour. Or I think you bring up the example of um, Queen Anne in England, right, as well. Yeah. Where, like there's kind of all this like political discussion of how she's, her whole court is being wrong gossip. And that's the only thing that's like making this happen. And that's obviously terrible, um, despite the fact that, you know, Louis himself had spies and had whatever. So the fact that important woman in court also has spies is not necessarily, as you say, kind of unusual. This becomes kind of a, a gendered way to argue for transparency or whether you see transparency and secrecy being gendered or maybe it's a little bit of both. Uh, yeah, I'd say for sure the latter. Um, it's gender. It's, I mean, gender's everywhere. I mean, I think gender responds with all this, right? It just permeates everything. Mm-hmm. And maybe I should have made it even more um, conspicuous. And uh, it, it for sure is an important part of the chapter in this figure uh, but yes, I think this should not be overworked. Like Abermas's theory has made a big splash, and it's really important to understand the public sphere and the rise of public under the Enlightenment. Um, but I think a lot of the critiques, um, many, many great historians have talked about how uh, he overlooks the general aspect of this, and there's great work on this, right? So I'm just really standing on the shoulder of giants here and echoing what they're saying. That uh, that we need need to understand that in spaces and gender, and that um, it gets more crystallized, right? The Enlightenment is new again. Mm-hmm. The sense of a separate, private, and um, public sphere. They didn't have that in the pre-modern world. There was nothing. It was more nebulous. It was more wishy-washy, right? Um, but then, with the rise of all well, kind of bourgeois sensibility, the rise of um, Interestingly, the rise of democracy in this area, Jen Scott, I guess, meaning by her here, um, you do have this sense that uh, in a modern democracy, the way they're articulating it, what place for debate is a place for men. Mm-hmm. You know, to stay out of this. And uh, your job is, if you're a woman, is to be a Republican mother. Right? This is a discourse of Republican motherhood. And that's how you contribute to the Republic, right? And democracy is great. Uh, we're going to do this. We're going to be out in the open. We're going to have debates. Nothing's going to be behind closed doors. But women need to stay out of it and um, focus on cultivating virtue and raising good babies. Right? And then put virtue, cultivate your virtue, and then make sure your children raise up in this um, virtue and patriotism and love of country. Right? That's your job. Um, and there's something unnatural about you uh, getting into the public sphere. You need to stay out of that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I do think it's I do think it's integral to um, these these narratives or these these stories we're starting to tell about 
transparency and secrecy. Um, and I think it really made it powerful and uh, successful by gendering, mm-hmm. by gendering stories. And people really got on board. Even some women, you know, like even, even uh, the famous, uh, uh, she was a, she had a newspaper during the revolution. Her name was Louise de Carval or something like this. And it's interesting because she is a woman in the public sphere publishing newspapers. And even she promoted this narrative. Yeah. Women need to stay in the private sphere. And she's like, oh, I'm just doing this temporarily. I'm not really staying in the public sphere. I'm just publishing this newspaper because I love the Republic so much. I love the revolution. But really, like, women need to stay in the domestic spirit. So, yeah, I think I think it's really um, entirely wrapped up in mm-hmm. the and transparency, even democracy. No, and I, I haven't really thought of it in that direction particularly, right? That, like, in order to suggest that women should, you know, your Republican mothers and be kind of involved in the home space or whatever you do also have to then have a very defined sense of what is private and what is public yeah so it's sort of necessarily part and parcel of the story that once that becomes defined it becomes easier to say like actually you don't belong here because these are separate spaces and this one's not for you right um so i'm wondering maybe pivoting off of that um female editor if we should talk about print media and publications. And obviously this is a partially self-serving question because I love print media. Um, but particularly in the chapter about uh, the Jansenist and Jesuit debates, you talk a lot about kind of the role of underground publishing and print media. Uh, and this is obviously a really important kind of space of public debate and public opinion. Yeah, so you say that Jansenists are kind of surprisingly good at underground publishing, right? And kind of getting their messaging out about Jesuits, which I thought was really good framing. Um, and that they kind of use their their robust print networks, both in France, but actually kind of internationally as well, to rile up public sentiment against Jesuits. Um, so can you talk maybe a little bit about, bit more about the role of print media as part of these kind of changing perceptions of secrecy and transparency, kind of how they were used by people who were mobilizing these new concepts? Yes, yeah, that is that is a good, interesting point, because argument was that the Jacksonists are all about transparency, and yet they do have this clandestine uh, network for publishing and spreading um, all the sense of ideas, right? So that's true. I would I would maintain that the Jansenists nevertheless love transparency. They're all about that. And they kind of have recourse to this secret um, underground network because they were persecuted for a lot of the um, the first half of the 18th century. A lot of their views received secrecy. And so the French state, especially in the early years, was trying to get them to stop, or there were all these controversies, like they wouldn't go in or they were sent to prison for spreading their Jansenist ideas. So they definitely have this martyr complex, and it's not as if oh, they were persecuted. Um, that's going on. They also really just um, really latch on to this biblical interpretation of um, theology, and I won't go into the theology, it's very it's dense, okay? There's a really good discussion of theology. I'm not a very sort of wise in the matters of theology person, and I could follow it. So it is boring if somebody's interested in that. Thank you. I'm glad I'm glad you thought so. I just thought I should break it down in the intro to that chapter for anyone who's not steeped in the Jansenism, right? I know that Jansen is falling. I know that everyone is. Right, right. I mean, I'm sure Jansen is falling. So I'm like, this is very on the surface. Um, but basically, you know, they're kind of leaning towards Calvinism in the sense that they think that... Um, Human nature is inherently corrupt. You're bad. You're gross. You are going to go to hell without the grace of God, right? It's basically fought for the grace of God. Then you're going to lie. So they, as they say, there's nothing, um, there's, 
basically almost nothing you could do because you're so corrupt and gross and wicked um, that it's just it's just obvious that if you believe in God and you that God's grace might save you. There's very little that you pathetic human can do to show gross. Um, the Jesuits have a very different, and they're both Catholic, right? But the, like I said, the Jansenists almost lean towards Calvinism mm-hmm. in that sense. Um, the Jesuits have a very different view of human nature. It's much more sanguine. It's much more positive, you could say. They thought that even after the fall, we got to fall with Adam did Peru, that the garden beating, that you still have a lot of hope. And if you kind of just um, try to do good works and pray and confess your sins, you'll probably be okay. Right. And um, so there's just much more, there's just much more positive and optimistic about the literature. And um, this appealed to a lot of people. So had James Wick as confessors in this world. And the Jansenists just thought that that was disgusting and they were too lax and they were too nice. And definitely most people are going to hell. And you need to be on board with that idea and realize that only God's grace can save Right. And so you have really due to competing ideas of human nature there, really, at the heart of it. Um, they also didn't like that the Jesuits often were uh, often the confessors of powerful people. That was often their MO was to get in good with powerful people and then hope that they'll trickle down. So the Jesuits did that as missionaries too. Like when they went to China, they would try to get in good with elites, um, hopefully convert elites. They weren't always successful with that, but they tried to do that and then they thought it would trickle down. So um, the Jansenists don't like that. And to, um, you know, chumming with powerful people and then pull strings being the seeds, just like those women. Right, so that's the idea. Um, and the Jansenists, therefore, um, they, they thought that the best way was to shine light into the darkness. They're taking this biblical language of light and darkness and saying that shining light is a way to bring truth, right? And... And there's all these people with the wrong ideas or secretly controlling things. And those Jesuits, because they're at court and they're also have an international network, they are, um, they have this sinister global conspiracy to take over the world. And this is one of those early ideas of worldwide global conspiracies, right? That um, are often anti-Semitic. And they they began, sometimes you see this in the literature, to tie this to an anti-Semitic idea of this global um, network. Therefore, they're not really any belonging to any nation. They're the people who are scattered across all nations. And because of that, they don't really belong here. They're not really French. And also, they've got this sinister international network that they're trying to control. Right? That's kind of the origin of that global conspiracy theory. Um, and then they had, they were really good at publishing because they had this religious urbancy and were just just think of people who are really zealous in their religious beliefs. They published in these newspapers that were really widely read across France and in um, other countries where they published, especially the Dutch Republic and Germany, places at England, parts of the American coast. A lot of Jansenists were in America. So they would publish these newspapers, and a lot of them would just be diatribes against the Jesuits. Jesuits were terrible and secretive. And God will shine light. God will break the truth to light. God will shine light into the shadows and bring this out. And it starts as mainly religious and kind of segues to being political. And the other thing to know about the Jansenists, which is a lot of similar to the revolution, like the Jacobins, was they are very Manichaean. They're very sense of black and white. There's us and white. There's good and evil. And there's new 
middle, middle ground, right? You're, you're good, you're evil, and thought will vindicate the good and shine light into all the shadows, bring, bring, bring truth to light. This, this, they love this language, and they really are again and again. Um, the Jesuits are like basically um, the embodiment of ignorance of because they're secretive, or two laughs, you know, um, they think more people are going to heaven than are going to heaven. And eventually, um, a lot of people on the Parnamon, which are the law courts, were kind of um, magistrates or sort of well-educated um, judicial nobles, but they, and some of them are kind of middle-class lawyers. They're very much attracted to Jansenism, and they start to promote this language of patriotism and emotion. And they say that, oh, those who are secretive are also for it. Mm. The Jesuits are more loyal to the Pope than France, even if they are French Jesuits in France. They swear loyal to the Pope. They're international. They've got this international network. Plus, they're secretive. So they start to move this narrative of secrecy equals foreignness, not of the nations. So they really start to develop, um, I think, this little nationalist discourse. Right? I think it's really hard. And it's really powerful. The Jansenists are very successful. And the reason I think they're more successful than the Jesuits in their story is that they understood public opinion and they marshaled it to their to their advantage. They would publish pamphlets. They would do their own, well, we would call it a smear campaign. The Jesuits are doing this, they're doing that. They would publish abroad. They would circulate. And even though this was illegal, they were very good at getting this into the radar and then promoting a coherent narrative. Um, um, convincing the public that the Jesuits are seeking it and foreign and against the nation and that the Jansenists are transparent and for the nation, right? Of the nation. So it's really, I really think that this is the beginning of nationalism. They're starting to say foreignness equals secrecy. We can't be trusted. We can't trust foreigners. You need to trust people who put the nation first. Right. As Jesuits, they're, who knows? You know, they, they say they put the thought first, but they really just care about themselves. Mm -hmm. They just power. We are of the nation. We're loyal to the nation. And they're very good at harping on that. Right. So secrecy and transparency are not only then kind of feminized or masculinized concepts, but they also become sort of of the nation or not of the nation. Um, and both of those kind of increase and increase and kind of build on one another to eventually get us to the last chapter of your book, which is about the terror, um, and particularly about the aftermath of the terror. Um, so what do you see as the role of transparency, as you said before, kind of is a is ground that's been covered, um, the role of transparency in the terror itself, um, but sort of how the discourse of transparency maybe outlives the terror in some ways? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll be honest with you, I was really terrified of touching the terror. I, enough, I did not want to write about it because... It is, you know, I mean, we know that the French Revolution has just a mountain, not just a mountain, a mountain range of historiography, right? And then within the French Revolution, the terror is the most written about thing. Mm -hmm. In the most written about thing, okay. right? It's just thinking, huh? It's a daunting task. Yeah, I, and oh, what was I thinking? Writing on the French Revolution, there's so much, and I mean, it's, I mean, it's it's irresistible, but it's also just like, oh my gosh, how could I possibly contribute or say something new about the terror when it is the most debated and most written about? Them? And so I really kind of agonized about this, even though um, I was advised we really need to have a chapter on the terror if you're talking about transparency. 
right? Everybody's going to want to know sort of where this ends, right? Yeah. And I said, yeah, okay, okay. So I did a research trip to Paris and tried to think, what can I do? What can I, um, what can I possibly say about the power and transparency that is in any way, shape, or form original or new? And I had found these really great denunciation letters yes. when I was all on BNF one summer. And they were just, they were just amazing. And I started to think about also, um, for whatever reason, I came across um, Tremenda Stahl's work, her writings on the revolution, you know, or people might know she's Nick Hare's daughter. Mm -hmm. And so she was very interested in how people were grappling with the revolution and the terror, knowing the problems and I guess then she also really loved public opinion, valued it, all this jazz. So um, I started to think, okay, what can I say about transparency of the terror after that? Maybe I I can go to just right after Thermidor, which is the fall of Rose and see what people were saying about that, who lived it, or at least were in that political moment. Um, maybe I can have have a kind of closing argument about that. And so I'm reading these denunciation letters, and they look great, by the way, except on this one woman who's probably from lower middle class or even working class denounced Weaver and she's pretty she's pretty hardcore. She um denounces them to the local surveillance committee. She calls them bombs, um worms of the of the aristocracy, um, worthless threads. Um and you need to you need to go after these guys right away because who knows if we don't arrest them, it will be worse than uh, we can even watch it. Which is a fascinating, like that language is such a fascinating parallel to the lit de cachet, right? Saying that like you need to contain them immediately and like they need to be sort of like it's going to contaminate them rather than it being my family. It's like the nation is the family. It's really, sorry, that was just fascinating. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. So you need to act now because who knows what will happen. They will spread their counter-revolution and it could be disastrous for all of us, right? So act now and get these guys. And she's really dogmatic and really intense about it. She says, I'm sure I'm right. And if I'm wrong, you can have me pillory and display to the public here, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. I have done my duty as a citizen. You need to do your son. So she's really hardcore. And um, it's interesting, too, for the gender aspect because um, there was more kind of even more pushing women out of the public sphere. They had closed women's clumps by this. And yet the revolution had, um, had this really strong narrative that renunciation is an act of citizenship. Yeah. And the new thing about pronunciation in the revolution is it is public. You're the person you accused can know who the accuser is. Right. Very unlikely that the cachet, right? It's not a private accusation and a private imprisonment. It's instead a like public accusation and public kind of revealing up the problems. Exactly. Exactly. So that was that was new in the revolution. Denunciation is no longer private and secret. You would see who your accuser was, you would know about it, and you'd be able you'd be able to respond, right? And they even um, used different terms. So in the old regime, they would use the term data okay. which was how he um, mentioned if you denounce someone to the police. And in the revolution, you have the term denunciation, which is they thought was kind of had more of a positive, transparent connotation. That's really interesting. I, I um, decided to latch onto this idea of denunciation and how um, for them it's an act of citizenship. But I was also interested, interested in how someone would respond to denunciation. And were people who were denounced, like the famous painter David, he was denounced and he writes this great response like, I am as pure as day. My heart is as pure as day, or I'm as pure as crystal. 
you see, I have nothing to hide. We always say this. Many on appearance is the best thing, and you can see this. I've always been a patriot. I love the revolution, etc., etc. So um, I wanted to see how this denunciation made during the terror. I mean, it's really kind of the heart of uh, when you talk about the terror, people being surveilled by the neighbors, being denounced to the tribunals, thrown into the guillotine, right? This is the terror we're talking about, right? And um, I was curious to see if there was any kind of backlash to this after Thermidor. Is there other people saying, oh, it's so terrible that we had so much surveillance. Right, we got to go back to secrecy. You know, we gotta go back to secrecy. And that was my assumption. And that's not what I saw. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really interesting. So Constant, who was um also a kind of a well known sort of leftish, moderate leftish thinker of the seventeen nineties and the eighteen hundreds, and uh Germain de Stahl, they were both sort of on the same page in terms of politics. They were against the terror, they did not like the Jacobins, they were always more moderate. And I found in their right and they're writing right after the terror has ended. They had been in exile. They come back to France. Um, they're kind of trying to make um, make kind of make sense of what's happening. And everyone feels like they're on sh- sh- shaky ground. They don't know what to make it on um, the afternoon. And they say that the way they interpret the tra- the terror is it's fanaticism. It's people run amok okay, in their political urgency, but they don't exactly take it as a referendum. And transparency. They actually say, oh, public opinion is very important. We need to stay focused on that. And that's actually how we will keep things balanced. But the terror went crazy because um, it was people were being fanatics. They weren't, they weren't allowing freedom of the press because we do get this return of censorship during the terror. And that was kind of the key point for Dishkal on um, store. And what was interesting to me, I thought they would say, oh, there was too much surveillance. It was transparency taken to extremes. Uh, we might say that now, but it's interesting that in the aftermath, they really thought it was just um, political fanatics replacing religious fanatics in the 16th century. Mm-hmm. And let's let's bring back um, freedom of speech and civil rights, and that will maintain, and that will keep us from falling into the chaos of the terror mm-hmm. again. So my conclusion in this lab, that really kind of cemented transparency in um, the political culture of the West from then on. That's kind of the, no one's going to question that value, even if they undermine it. And Napoleon did. And so he's doing all kinds of things secretly. He basically came to power through a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. But Napoleon nevertheless maintains this language of transparency. I'm legitimate. I'm I'm legitimate because I'm transparent. Mm-hmm. Legitimacy equals transparency as person, right? right? And he always says that, even though he's definitely not following that. And so it doesn't mean they follow it or are not or are consistent, not consistent. Mm-hmm. They nevertheless keep that language going through the 19th century. Right. And so that's the conclusion I came to. And it surprised me. It's really interesting. There were a lot of surprises. Yeah. I think that might be a good place to end. Um, so maybe a, a, a last question is inspired by one of my favorite not at all academic podcasts um, which is normal gossip uh felt really appropriate for the kind of secrecy and rumor and shadowy information um which is what is your relationship to gossip or in this case it could be what is your relationship to secrecy since you've written a whole book about it do you sort of have a different understanding of secrecy either in your own life or in kind of 
our contemporary world than you did before working on this project? Yeah, I love gossip all of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say that I it made me think twice about just always valuing transparency. And, you know, I, I do think it's, of course, important and probably essential in modern democracy. I mean, and I don't think we'll ever, it's not like we can ever go back. We're not going to go back get rid of it or regime or something um so i do think that it's valuable but i also do think that secrecy is valuable too sometimes um you know i think you could argue that there is space there's a time and place i guess for secrets to be protected and sometimes secrecy can save lives or help people right i mean you can see this in modern politics i guess where um they would they would blow the copper earth yeah. under agent, right? And then that just, you know, all of a sudden these lives were at stake or some or some problem. And then we see this with the debates in um, Julian Assange or Snowden, right? Loads kind of, of information, like they steal from the government and give to the public, right? And sometimes um, that seems really cool and we need farmers. And other times it's it's problematic maybe because maybe there was some people who whose lives are now in danger because they were undercover somewhere then. Yeah. Maybe that should have not been brought to the on the like light. So I think I might be I might have become more open to secrecy in some areas and places than I was before after reading about this. And I think the other thing is just that um more in a cultural sense, I think that people um are just fascinated with secrecy and mystery. Right. So I, I looked up the definition of secrecy for this book. And one of it was uh, an information that is held by a group of people, a small group, and kept from a large group. Right. The second definition was a mystery, mm. special kind of Right. And that we do want that sense to our um, fascination. Right. There's, it, if, if there's something hidden, people might often think it's sinister. Or they might think it's interesting or fascinating or um, exciting to delineate, right? And this is kind of, you do see this in gothic novels or mystery novels or something, right? And I do think that we probably can never have total transparency because it would take some of the mystery and some roots like, huh, out of life. Right? And I think maybe that is that could be also what's really interesting about rulers and gossip, right? It's like, oh, did you do this? This is like knowledge. Nobody knows this. Oh my gosh, this person, right? And yes, probably probably do a little damage and gossip you know, this with that person and yeah, the facts, all this stuff happening. But I think um, culturally, though, we will never be able to stop finding secrecy and mystery. There, this is we always want to um, find out about that. And it's just kind of, I guess, when you think of narrative or storytelling. If you know everything at the beginning, there's no story. It's even interesting, right? It's like it's like people who don't want spoilers. They hate spoilers because you're running, we're running out the mystery or the lore, right? And I'm, you see this a lot in novels too. Sometimes it's a mystery. Um, they'll say the mystery was always more interesting than the than the reveal, right? Like mm-hmm. as you get the like, it, it's it's somehow less uh, exciting. But there's still something to discover, wonder, right? Um, it's 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 exciting and kind of um, I don't know rooting you to find out more. You know, there might be something about us as people where we need some of that um, for excitement or for to keep our interest peaked 
to keep to keep this going. So, um, so like in terms of politics, maybe some secrets might say lies, but I think in, in the cultural arena, I think we need um, we could never completely get rid of it because we're always attracted to it, whether we like it or not. Some people might say, "Oh, that person's in the secret that they might be hiding something." Other people, I think, might say, "Oh, she's really mysterious." Right? And again, it's gendered, right? There's this kind of allure of the mysterious woman, right? right. Maybe, she's, maybe she's dangerous, but um, right. But there's like something sort of beyond the surface that you can explore, that you can develop, that maybe you will then be privy to the secrets of. Right. Yeah. She's definitely alluring. So I, I think we just see this motif in so many books and movies across cultures, even right. The, especially mysterious woman. Well, I think um, I think we see those tropes a lot. We love that, you know, even if we don't fully acknowledge it. I don't think it's going away in a Well, luckily, people can find out so much more about secrecy in the book and anybody who likes true crime podcasts and mysteries and thrillers, as well as, you know, historians of France, um, I think could learn a lot from this. Um, so thank you again so much for talking today. It was a pleasure to learn more. Um, and the book Tracing the Shadow of Secrecy and Government Transparency in 18th Century France is again now out with Paul Grave McMillan. So thanks again for your time, Nicole. Thank you very much. Thank you.